Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, this is Dan Kilbride. I am the host of New Books in American Studies, and I'm also the chair of the history department at John Carroll University outside of Cleveland, Ohio. Uh, so today we are speaking with Christine Knauer, and that, that, that K is a hard K, you want to pronounce that. Uh, she is the postdoc research fellow at the Eberhard Karls University of Tübingen, Germany, and we're discussing her brand new book, called Let Us Fright as Free Men, Black Soldiers and Civil Rights, which was just published by the University of Pennsylvania Press. So, Christine Gnauer, welcome to New Books in American Studies. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure and honor. Well, great. Um, so this book, I think, is really exciting because, um, you know, it, it's in, in American history, it's fine. It's hard to find something that is that is new. We keep sort of replowing old ground, and that's especially true in the area of civil rights, which is uh, just an enormous area of scholarship. There are so many people working on civil rights uh, that it's just really difficult to find something new. But here we have a, a subject that, you know, when you look at it, you scratch your head and you say, I can't believe that you know nobody has written this book before because the issue of uh, – Black men in uniform and the struggle for civil rights seems like such uh, a natural one that it's it's terrific to have this book in front of us. So, Christine, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to write this book? Um, I started writing this book. I mean, it was a project. It was my dissertation. Um, I, I was looking for a topic for a long time, and I looked everywhere, and I was interested in many things, and I wanted to work on uh, – the American occupation in Germany. And then I stumbled upon this, this topic of African Americans and the struggle for integration in the American military. And I found that a lot of it had been written, but nothing substantial and nothing with a look. Everybody talked about it with uh, a top down approach, looking at what uh, the military did and what Truman did. But nobody looked at the African Americans who struggled for it, and there is so much struggle that so much struggle had been going on before the Second World War and during the Second World War and after the Second World War. And I wanted to look at that, and I wanted to take a bottom bottom up approach to the whole topic, and that's what I tried to do. And I hope I was in one way um, or another successful in doing so. And what made you interested in United States history in this era? Um, you know, uh, where I live, there are a lot of Americans. We have a lot of Americans in, in the southern part of Germany because after the war, we were occupied by Americans and Stuttgart still has a base and mm -hmm. it's a very um, vibrant community. And I when I, I think since I'm... Since I was a little kid, I was fascinated with the United States, and I I traveled to the states for the first time when I was fifteen. And hmm. since then, 
it never left me. It, I was always, I'm, I'm, I love it. I just love it. I, I let's put it that way. I have a love hate relationship with it, <laughs> like many Americans have. Uh, so I, I love it. I love to travel the United States. I love to be there. I think it's a great country and very friendly people. So I think that that's why I started studying um, American history and American studies and American literature. And I, it kind of went from there. And I right, spent cool. a year in the States uh, as a as a student. So and uh, I was at Brown and that was a great time. Um, oh, I learned yeah. a lot. So. Yeah. Where did you do the research for this book and what kinds of evidence uh, are the foundation for it? Um, I researched African-American newspapers. I researched at the Schomburg Center uh, in New York. Um, I went to the Carlisle Barracks. I went to the Truman Library. I mm. went to the Library of Congress to do research in the NAACP papers. Um I looked at the National Urban League. I looked at A. Phil Randolph's papers. I looked at papers located at Swarthmore, um, uh, which has a huge collection of um, peace studies uh, things. Um, so there were Bayard Rustin's papers, uh, an enormous amount of papers uh, um, <laughs> that I covered or tried to cover. So my my basement and my study is full of uh, folders. Um, <laughs> so, and uh, don't, don't get me started on my hard drive because everything is uh, uploaded there. So, yes. Oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. I know all about that. Yeah. Um, it's cluttered. So, but it was great. <laughs> it was really great to see um, all these different sources. And I went to, e I even went to Los Angeles to look at NAACP huh. papers uh, there at Berkeley and in at Los Angeles. So, yeah, I, I got around pretty much. Great. But it was um, fun. One thing that might surprise. Uh, people coming to this book is that it's a it's a book about the civil rights movement that is really concentrated in the early 1950s, and I think when most uh, Americans, most civilians, think about the civil rights movement, they 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 kind of date it later. They, if you want to ask, when did the civil rights movement start? They might there might be a few options. They might talk about the Brown v. Board of Education yes. decision, uh, the uh, the anniversary of which was, I think, yesterday. Mm. Um, they might date it with the Montgomery bus boycott of mm. the later 1950s. But you know, one thing that's been happening in civil rights studies for a long time is that uh, historians have been going back. They've been going back to the early 1950s to the 1940s to kind of push the beginnings of the civil rights struggle back. Yes. And I wonder if you might, timeline. yeah, I wonder if you might situate your book in this new chronology of the civil rights movement, because it, it, it seems to me that if, if we, if we keep doing this, we're going to be going back to say Booker T. Washington to talk about the beginnings of the yes. civil rights movement. Yes, that's true. Um, I think it's, in a way, I'm. I mean, Jacqueline Dodd Hall wrote the article on uh, on uh, the long civil rights movement. It's been a discussion uh, since then, uh, or even before that. But uh, she really pushed um, uh, buttons uh, among a lot of people, and they now push back the starting point of the civil rights movement. Um, I 
I am still not decided whether I would say it's a long civil rights movement rather or whether it's a long freedom struggle, as uh, other people said. Um, mm -hmm. So like Lawson, his book, um, The Long uh, um, Freedom Struggle. So maybe th that's more what I'm trying to argue, that it was a long struggle. And of course, it was a civil rights struggle, but it was not a movement. Um, the people I talk about, right. the okay. A. Philip Randolph's protest movement for an integrated mm -hmm. military that started in 1947, um, was not a movement. It, it didn't have the numbers. It was small. It was effective in a way, um, but it was small. It was very small. It was organized, yes, but not totally organized. Um, they were still, there was baby steps. It was the, the beginning of, um, uh, new techniques of protest, getting away from the traditional way of uh, doing things like the NAACP um, with legal uh, ways of doing it. It was um, grassroots uh, more than mm -hmm. anything else. But the grassroots uh, base was not as big as later on, uh, for sure. But so this, it was this a training camp in a way. <laughs> so the distinction you're making is between the civil, the, the freedom struggle and the movement, which is more of an organized, uh, uh, yeah. I don't know. Yeah, in a way. I mean, it was a movement, but it was a very small movement. And not people. when you read the book, you can see how many people protested the whole approach, how the mm -hmm. NAACP struggled with it, and how the National Urban League struggled with it. Um, so it's really... It was a struggle with uh, with a technique or with 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 the way A. Philip Randolph um, tried to. I mean, the the same thing happened during the Second World War or uh, before the Americans uh, joined the war. But um, uh, in 1942, when A. Philip uh, 41 and 42, when A. Philip Randolph star started the March on Washington, um, the first mm -hmm. March on Washington. Um, uh, he used techniques that nobody had really talked about, and he always referred to uh, Gandhi as his his guiding light and mm -hmm. as, uh, someone to um, emulate. So, um, and that made many people nervous, very nervous. Yeah. What do you think that looking at mil military desegregation? Uh, what does it tell us that is new or maybe unexpected about the struggle for equality? I think a lot of people think that uh, Truman integrated the military in 1948. Mm -hmm. And I would argue he did, but he did not. Um, he, his his uh, executive order never uh, mentioned desegregation or uh, segregation or um, um, integration. Never. He he didn't want to throw off the southern part of the nation, and uh, mm -hmm. especially the uh, the military was in, uh, very southern uh, in many ways. So he struggled with it. The wording of his executive order was not revolutionary, um, but to many it was. But to African Americans, it was rather tame. Uh, he did not talk about desegregation, and I think a lot of people don't know about A. Philip Randolph's movement. Um, right. about his mm -hmm. protest movement before, how he pressured Truman uh, to pass something, um, how uh, how he protested in front of uh, Congress or the, the subcommittees, um, um, the Senate subcommittee, and uh, how, he, how he tried to make change happen and how he argued. And I think a lot of 
uh, a lot in my book is about how he argued or how his people argued and his colleague Grant Reynolds argued for the integration of the American military and what that tells us about the African American community and its uh, concept of it uh, of itself or of its people of its soldiers if that makes yeah. any sense it does um you know one thing that uh I thought of when I was reading the introduction to this book was that, uh, you know, you begin with a, a figure named uh, Grant Reynolds mm -hmm. who uh, serves in the second world war. And he, well, I, I won't go through this story, but he is uh, sort of fired with a conviction to come back home and carry on the struggle mm -hmm. uh, for civil rights uh, when he gets back to the United States. And it struck me that, you also find this desire to continue the fight after the First World War. I mean, uh, yes. a lot of people will be familiar with uh, Du Bois's uh, uh, writing in The Crisis where he said, you know, we return, we return fighting. Mm -hmm. The idea is that, you know, we're, we, 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 are fight, we are fighting to uh, make the world safer democracy in Europe, and we're certainly going to make the United States safer democracy. Yet, as we know... Uh, not a lot changed after mm -hmm. World War One. Uh, white Southerners responded to uh, African American struggles for equality in the 1920s with, you know, considerable ferocity, and mm -hmm. not a lot of progress was made in the 1920s. Yet after World War Two, considerable progress was made, and I've wondered if you could uh, reflect on what 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 was different about those two periods. What what allowed for some success, considerable success, to occur after World War II? Well, after World War One, not much changed mm. for the better for, for black people. I think World War II changed the United States um, in many ways. I think when the concentration camps in Europe, or yeah, in all of Europe, but especially in Poland and, and Germany, were opened and the pictures flooded the United States. Uh, the atrocious, uh, the atrocities uh, that the Germans committed um, were revealed. Um, I think that opened a lot of people's eyes in to a certain extent, at least. Um, and African Americans talked a lot about that in the Second World War. The parallels between what happened in America and what happened in Europe. The mm -hmm. oppressive system that existed in, in, in Germany and the rest of Europe due to, due, due to the Germans and the oppressive system that ex existed in the South, uh, and in the North as well. I mean, not to the, that extent, maybe, but still there was a, a certain amount of segregation and sure. uh, ostracization of African Americans. Uh, you cannot talk about um, Atlanta or segregation in, in Oxford, Mississippi without talking about uh, the horrible situation African Americans faced in Chicago. Um, uh, so I'd say mm -hmm. at least so maybe some uh, other people or researchers would contradict me, but, um, uh, so I think there was a change in thinking and I think, uh, a lot of soldiers even uh, rethought their way of looking at things and brought new ideas maybe back home. And African-Americans were not willing to back down. So it was a, a very ferocious fight for them. They were not ready to back down. And they experienced, strangely enough, a lot of African-American soldiers experienced freedom in Germany that they hadn't experienced in the South. 
Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. So, which is kind of a paradox, considering that Germany was this is horribly oppressive state where people, six million Jews were killed, um, uh, not to mention all the other uh, groups, um, which would take forever. Um, but so <laughs> they experienced this freedom and this acceptance in in a country that oppressed so many others and. They felt that they were equal for the first time. Um, so they came back. And many African-Americans did not even want to leave Germany or France. They wanted to stay. Um, and when they came back, they felt that they needed to fight for it. And, of course, there, there was violence in the South after the Second World War as well as after the First World War. But it never boiled to that uh, I mean, it was never that explosion of violence. It was violent, mm -hmm. yes. A lot of African-Americans got hurt, shot, even killed, of course. But it never came to that, uh, what happened after the First World War, uh, with mass lynchings and right. shootouts and racial violence in streets. Yeah, it's interesting because uh, uh, your answer, it's, it's sort of what I, I thought you were going to say, but I, I was wondering about that because I, you know, I am not an an expert on this field at all. I study more early American history. And I first encountered the argument that you just gave that, you know, that, that white Americans were uh, ashamed at the analogy that they could make between their own uh, oppression of people of color and the situation with Jews and communists and other minorities in Germany. I think uh, Robert J. Norell, uh, mm. who wrote a really interesting book on the civil rights movement in Tuskegee, Alabama, mm. also wrote, wrote an article that I read once that said, you know, that, that World War I changed white Americans and, it, and, and made them more receptive to mm. uh, arguments for civil rights. So I thought that was uh, – I'm glad to hear that you agree with that. What I – um, sorry. Go ahead. No, go right ahead. Go ahead. No, what I also, of course, what I have to say, I mean, the Cold War changed too. Uh, it changed the yes. United States too. I think we cannot forget the Cold War as a as a element that pressured the United States uh, to change things. Um, the eyes of the world were on the United States mm -hmm. more than ever before, I'd say. I mean, it's a grand statement, but I still think... I, of course, first of all, I mean, the information technology was installed and Russia, uh, the Soviet Union tried to, of course, uh, highlight the faults of the United States as much as the mm -hmm. United States tried to hi highlight the faults of the Soviet Union. So it was a propaganda war that was going on. And it, of course, the, the nation's we have uh, anti-colonial uh, movements in Africa, pe uh, pe peoples trying to to break free from uh, from European oppressive systems. So, and uh, they, the United States, did not want to lose lose them to to Russia in the mm -hmm. um, in the early years of the Cold War. So, um, of course, oftentimes it was window dressing, but still, a change was going on. Uh, to make the world look upon the United States differently and um, that the United States was better than the rest, that uh, African-Americans were no longer oppressed. Right. I mean, we know that I mean, the Kennedy administration was acutely aware of the image of the United States abroad. Yeah. So you have, you know, like Pravda in the Soviet Union, yeah. uh, 
you know, reproducing photographs of the Birmingham riots mm. and dogs attacking protesters and so forth. Do you think this? Do you think that the Cold War, the, the influence of the Cold War on the civil rights movement was all positive? You know, did, did it? Did it? Did, did the Cold War just promote civil rights at least by making? Uh, Americans very sensitive to their image abroad, or did it have a? Uh, could it cut both ways? Did, did it, in some ways the Cold War detract from civil rights? I think it did both. I think it hindered the civil rights movement and it helped the civil rights movement. I think it was a double-edged sword. Um, and I think um, when you look at my book, I, I'd say I, I'd argue that. Um, because a lot of discussion has been going on in research whether uh, African Americans were uh, stymied in their attempts to 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 uh, fight for civil rights and that they didn't join forces with communist uh, communists in the country so they that they could be more powerful and things and um, a lot of silent silencing was going on at least that's the argument I, th- I think mm-hmm. at many points. They yes, they try to to appear anti-communist and try to fit the the picture of what they were supposed to look like, not support communism and stuff. But still, they carved out spaces for themselves, and I think that they are less. Uh, they didn't adapt to the oppressive system as much as a lot of historians might argue they did. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think uh, the civil rights movement was not completely silenced by um, anti-communism in the United States. They found ways of protesting. And I think okay. uh, the, the Korean War, um, the, the, the soldiers in the Korean War are an example for that. Right. You know, one thing you focus on in your book is the image or the representation of black soldiers. And you argue that this is... Uh, this is very important that you know that that African American leaders and ordinary people of color believe that it was very important for black soldiers to be represented in certain ways. Uh, yeah. How how was that image, uh, and, and why was it so important? I think that what is of course in whether it is the United States or Germany in the 1930s and 1940s, maybe not no longer now. I'd say that the image of the German soldier has a different quality uh, coming from the Second World War. But um, I think what is is important is this virile soldier, the one that protects the family, um, uh, or the the one who protects the family, the nation, uh, and who fights and who does the fighting. But the majority of African-Americans during the Second World War were not soldiers. I mean, they were soldiers, but they were not fighting soldiers. They were the ones uh, who had to clear the, the path, who, who dug holes, who dug latrine, who, who installed latrines and mm-hmm. carried the, the, the things to the front. Uh, that was their job. And African-Americans were uh, the press and uh, the soldiers themselves were very interested in, or at least that's what I'm trying to show with the book, were very interested in showing how important this job was and how how much uh, the the African-American soldiers fought and suffered during that time, even though they oftentimes didn't have uh, uh, weapons, uh, but they were always under attack and that they really helped the cause of the United States. So they tried to improve the, the image of uh, African-American soldiers 
during the war. And when you look at uh, people like um, uh, uh, Eastland or uh, Bilbo, uh, Senators Eastland and Bilbo, both mm-hmm. from Mississippi, mm-hmm. they always try to to put uh, African-American soldiers down and say they didn't fight. They were cowards. They fled yeah. the scene. Mm-hmm. Um, Richard B. Russell did the same thing, a uh, senator from Georgia. Um, they always talked about the cowardice um, of African-American soldiers. And that was what African-Americans were always fighting. And that what the, what was um, what they did after the Second World War. Um, or at least that's what I try to show. <laughs> it seems to me that that expectation puts an extraordinary burden on ordinary uh, people of color. I mean, I think you see this demand for exemplary behavior among black people throughout African-American history. I mean, you, you see it in uh, like a figure like Frederick Douglass mm-hmm. who wrote, you know, again and again and again in his newspapers that, you know, uh, people, you know, free people of color in the North needed to, you know, behave themselves you know, just exemplary. They needed to, you know, uh, uh, not gamble, not Mm. drink, not get arrested. Uh, Booker T. Washington, W.B. Du Bois, for all their differences, also argued that, you know, black people had to conform to, you know, American middle-class culture to to give the lie to the kind of uh, images that you talked about Eastland and Bilbo. Yeah. Saying, and it seems to me that you know those expectations for absolutely exemplary behavior put uh, extraordinary burdens on ordinary people to uh, you know to to behave in ways that you know not everybody's going to behave in. Yeah, I mean they were always under extreme pressure, and um, that was also what A. Phil Randolph said when he created his his movement to to end uh, desegregation or to force uh, Truman to end uh, segregation, not desegregation, but to desegregate the military and end segregation. He said that uh, the people had to dress well. They had right. to behave well. They should never fight back. It was very much in the, on the, as, he was on the same page as, as Martin Luther King was later on. Mm-hmm. He, he mm-hmm. also instructed his, his uh, grassroots people, uh, grassroots to never fight back, to always, um, to not talk back, to not uh, pick a fight. It was always a very tame middle class image, uh, that they were trying to, to, to create. To not uh, gay, gay, go against the grain and uh, and uh, upset anyone with their behavior. Of course, their behavior upset people, but not the outward way of of protest. Should never upset people. They should never. Mm-hmm. It, there should never be someone um, raising an arm and uh, slapping someone. It was right. always a very. Um, um, yeah, a civil disobedience with a, a nonviolent civil disobedience. Mm-hmm. I wonder if you could elaborate on something you were just talking about, which is, uh, you know, the book talks a lot about the intersection between masculinity mm. and military service. Yeah. And you've just kind of talked about that and the necessity to show, you know, the brave soldier, the selfless person who, who follows orders. Um, do you think that military service and the emphasis on masculinity, uh, did that reinforce in any way the the marginalization of women in the struggle for equality that has been a a, a big subject in scholarship? Yeah, I think um, uh, 
women were essential to the movement, but nobody talks about them. And it's really hard, at least for me, it was really hard to find them in the sources. I, ca I was able to find them as um, people who gave money. And mm -hmm. um, the, the, um, since April Randolph was also um, head of the uh, Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, and they had actually a women's league, a women's support group. He he uh, always asked for money from them. He wrote letters to most of the uh, to the sections or to 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 like in Chicago or in uh, in Pennsylvania somewhere in Philadelphia. Uh, he contacted them. Um, so they were essential to the movement, but there is not much. At least I couldn't find a lot on them what they did. So of course it's in a way a marginalization, but I cannot really uh talk I mean I would have to do oral history, even though I think the majority of people who protested at that point are dead. So it would <laughs> it could be kinda hard to to find them. But they yeah. are at least not visible that much in the sources. But I think it's not that I'm trying to to um I'm tr not trying to um, underline how important men were for the moment. I'm trying to underline how important concepts of uh, masculinity and manhood were to the movement right. and how much mm -hmm. they try to, in a way, re represent this norm um, that uh, the United States had at that time, like the virile man who, mm -hmm. who mm -hmm. fights. Um, and uh, or who fights and who 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 protects a uh, uh, family and nation, and I think that was essential. How they okay. try to conform to that idea and ideal. Um, one thing that you bring up up in your book is uh, which focuses again on the Korean War. Um, is that there's a complication in the Korean War about you know the struggle for equality in the United States, and that is. The Korean War was fought against Asians. Mm. So here we have, uh, you know, uh, uh, in the racial discourse of the period, here's another race that Americans are fighting against another race. How did the fact that this, the Korean War was fought against Asians complicate the debate about African-American integration into the new world, into the armed forces? Um, for African Americans, it complicated it. Um, this, a lot of people think that the Korean War is the first war, integrated war, that African Americans right. went into fighting, uh, desegregated. This is not true. Um, the first, uh, year, at least the first year of the fighting, uh, many African Americans still were, or still served in completely segregated forces. Uh, in, in, in units, they were still segregated, um, and they had a very bad image. Um, it was usually the African Americans who were blamed for failures, even though it was the whole concept of the war, the whole strategy, um, uh, the 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 um, whole way of uh, how the war was fought, and the the of course the climate and everything. I mean, Korea is not the easiest place to 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 live in and to fight in. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, uh, harsh winters and harsh summers, uh, and uh, something in between. Uh, but uh, it was really a tough time, and they didn't have the equipment. Um, but African Americans usually got the, uh, the they, they were um, again uh, the scapegoats in uh, many ways. So, and uh, then the American military decided to integrate uh, the uh, the military. Um, 
and allow uh, Asians, um, the uh, South Korean soldiers, to serve with white soldiers without any problem. But African Americans were still fighting um, in segregated units. So that was something that really annoyed and enraged a lot of African Americans, understandably so. Uh, people who were not even American were allowed to ser serve side by side with um, white Americans. Um, so that was a blow to African Americans. Um, and uh, that the fighting against Asians, they African Americans reproduced the same stereotypes oftentimes that um, white soldiers um, produced or uh, argued with. Or um, mm -hmm. uh, the, the African American press talked in the same way about Asians um, the the white press talked about Asians. At least mm -hmm. that's what I found, and others too. I think. You know, w w we've talked about the Cold War before, and how the Soviets tried to use American racism as a to to argue that Americans are hypocritical in their image about being the leaders of the free world, the so-called free world. Did uh, and another charge that was made by the communist bloc uh, was that the United States was oppressing racial minorities around the world that, you know, for example, in the Vietnam war, the argument was made that this is a racist war mm. by a predominantly white country against an, uh, you know, a, an Asian people. Was that argument made at all during the Korean war? And yes. did any African American leaders, you know, see this as another example of American racism, yes, just they, not towards blacks, but towards Asians? Yes, they did. They did. They argued that that was the, the kind of the paradox uh, in that they, on the one hand, they, argued with the same stereotypes. On the other, they pointed to the race war character of, of uh, the war in Asia. So why did, uh, I mean, they often talked about uh, when MacArthur uh, contemplated the, the, uh, the option of throwing the atomic bomb on, on Korea um, mm -hmm. again, or they thought that he did, um, uh, at least that was what, what was in the press. Um, he, they, they pointed to the fact that it was an Asian people. Why would they not drop right. the atomic bomb on Germany? Uh, they did it with Japan. So again, it's an Asian people. It's a minority. So uh, they, they pointed to the fact that there was not that much respect for, for other races. So that mm -hmm. was definitely an argument. But on the other hand, they, they used um, uh, the term, uh, quote-unquote, gooks all the time. Uh, right. in the African-American mm -hmm. press. So there was, mm. and uh, yellow hordes, uh, quote-unquote, it was also <laughs> something that they used. So it was not that the respect for Asians was uh, visible all the way through uh, the okay. sources. Mm -hmm. Now, even though, as I mentioned, this book focuses on Korea, uh, your first two chapters talk about the black experience in World War II. And then, so how how people of color sort of assessed and reflected on World War II. Um, what do you think are, are the most significant uh, uh, takeaways or uh, you know, what did African-Americans think they had learned about civil rights and the struggle for freedom from World War II? That they would not back down. I think that is a big lesson that they learned, that they – that they had to now use the impetus of the Second World War and the the, the things that they experienced there um, to make 
change happen in the United States. I think that is an essential part of what I'm trying to show and that they really try to use their service during the Second World War as a springboard for um, pointing to the lacks in civil rights at home and how mm -hmm. that they served as well and as uh, uh, as long as uh, white soldiers, but they didn't receive the same respect and the same, um, I mean, when you look at it, and I try to show that a lot of African Americans le left the army with, um, uh, without much, uh, they they had this um, stigma of uh, the blue discharge. They were not, mm -hmm. um, they they were not honorably discharged. But they were not dishonorably discharged. It was something in between. But still, they didn't have the right to to. Uh, to um, use the uh, GI Bill of Rights. So it was rather tough for them. And they tried to fight that. They didn't want that to happen. They wanted to have the same rights and they were ready to fight for it. Not violently, but still, they were ready to fight and argue for it and stand uh, stand for their rights um, and, uh, and make a stand for their rights. Uh, and I think that's why a lot of soldiers were essential in, in, in protesting their or fighting for their voting rights in the South after the Second World War, um, that a lot of Southern, white Southerners were afraid of African-Americans' re return because they knew mm -hmm. um, that they were willing to go the distance. Right. And uh, that they, and of course, the idea of an African-American with a gun was the most <laughs> horrible thought for a lot of whites in the South and not to say that it was not the same in the North, but especially in the South. I mean, um, so they they actually wanted them back into, in their place. But um, when, I, I don't know, they, they, there was, a, a, a lynching happened in Georgia in 1946 when uh, mm -hmm. uh, two couples were killed by uh, um, people unknown, <laughs> a group of unknown uh, people. Um, of course, <laughs> everybody knew who it was, but nobody talked about it. And um, somebody said that uh, um, his his farmhand, who actually was one of the killed, he was a good. Um, and now it comes the N word. That wasn't what what he used. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't want to repeat the word. So uh, he was a good N word uh, before the war, and now he was totally screwed up. Um, so the war changed African Americans, and people mm -hmm. saw that happening. Whites, and they were not very happy with it. Right. Uh, two figures that figure very prominently in the uh, next part of this book are A. Philip Randolph and Grant Reynolds. Yeah. Um, some of our listeners might have heard of A. Philip Randolph, but they certainly have not heard of Grant Reynolds. And I wonder if you could give us just a quick description of both Randolph and Reynolds, uh, their backgrounds and where they fit within your story. I mean, A. Phil Randolph is a civil rights leader. A lot of people don't remember, even though he was the one who instigated the March on Washington uh, uh, before and uh, made uh, Martin Luther King march on Washington together with Bayard Rustin. So I think it's it's a big loss that many people don't know him. Um, so he he was um, a labor leader. He he fought for. Uh, he had his own um, union, 
uh, African-American, the, the Brotherhood of Sleeping Quarters, as I said before. So he was very active. Uh, he was a socialist, but he was against communism. So he never joined the Communist Party. He always argued against communism, even though he never denied communists uh, the right to talk or to the, the freedom of speech. He always mm -hmm. wanted the, the, the discussion, but he didn't believe in communism. That was essential to him, that people know that, uh, that uh, communism uh, was oppressive as much as, as uh, anything. So... Um, so he he had a lot of uh, success with his Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters. He forced um, uh, the train company to back down and raise the wages. Um, so uh, he he had experience. And uh, at the beginning of the war, he he organized the March on Washington, the first March on Washington, which pressured uh, Roosevelt into. Um, into um, establishing the federal, uh, the FEPC. Uh, so there were a lot of things going on, and he was an essential figure in, if you want to call it that way, the early civil rights movement before mm -hmm. the civil right, the the civil rights movement that people usually talk about. And Grant Grant Reynolds, he's kind of he fell through the cracks of history. Nobody really remembers him. Um, he. Uh, uh, was a, a, a civil rights activist um, during the 1930s. Uh, he was uh, a chaplain uh, during the Second World War. Uh, he never served um, outside the United States. He was usually in in Arizona and in many other uh, at many other uh, bases. He was moved around a lot because he always talked against segregation, and he always stirred up. Uh, African American soldiers. He listened a lot. Uh, he listened to their plight and to their complaints, and he he uh, told uh, his his superiors about it. Um, so he ended up uh, in a psychiatric a psychi psychiatric care because they they said mm. he he, uh, <laughs> he was crazy, and that's the way he they got rid of rid of him. Um, so he had to leave the army. Uh, he didn't want to. Uh, so when he came back, he was really mad, and he wanted to make a change happen. And that's and he was a Republican, so he was not even. Uh, it was a strange thing. It was a strange pairing um, of April Randolph and Grant Reynolds, because Reynolds was a Republican, and uh, Randolph was very far uh, from the Republican Party <laughs> at that point. So, um, there was no love lost, but still they cooperated and they, uh, they tried to, he was the voice, uh, that talked, uh, for African American soldiers. He had the experience. They trusted him in many ways. Mm -hmm. Um, so, and, uh, he actually, uh, kind of when the movement ended in the early 1950s, um, he again fell through the cracks of history. Uh, when you look through the Afil Randolph papers, there are still some the letters. Uh, the, there's some letter exchange between the two of them, but they never really cooperate again. But he continued to work as a lawyer, as a civil rights lawyer in uh, in New York State. Um, so um, I think it was White Plains. Um, where he worked, and hmm, yeah. he died only a few years back. So, but uh, he was oh very old, and um, yeah, but very feisty. Um, 
Actually, I think his papers are supposed to be at the Schomburg in New York, but uh, the people there don't know about it. So oh, I no. talked to them. <laughs> it might have been lost in transition between, I think he was in a in an old age home in Florida. And uh, so maybe was the papers got, uh, got lost, which would be horrible. I think his papers would be great and a great asset. Uh, but uh, I couldn't find them. Oh, oh well, when they turn up, you'll have to write a second book. Yes, on Grant that, would, that would be a great thing to do. I would really like to write about Grant Reynolds because really, he's really a, a grassroots, as grassroots as it can get. And uh, so, and he, he had, he's in an interview, there is one interview at the Schomburg with him. And he talks about his notes that he took with the soldiers um, in, in Arizona and that he um, had interviews with them and that he collected all this. And I was like, yes, I want to have them. But I just couldn't find <laughs> the papers, which is oh. really, really frustrating. Yes, it is. So how did Randolph and Reynolds try to pressure the Truman administration to desegregate the military? What, what methods did they employ and which ones worked? It was really civil disobedience. At the beginning of, of their their protest movement, they sent letters like the NAACP did too. They tried to talk to Truman. They tried to uh, to meet with him. And it always was that the, the White House stalled them many times. And then they decided, no, that it's not enough to do it. We're going to... A demand from our the from we were going to tell our African Americans and whites too, but especially African Americans, uh, young men, not to join the American military. That was what they wanted to do. They wanted to ask African Americans not to join the American military. Mm-hmm. Though, so uh, they first told Truman at the end of March that they they had finally they had. Um, been granted a meeting with Truman, so they talked to him and told him, listen, uh, Mr. President, we are going to ask um, young men not to join the American military. And Truman was not amused, but he didn't do anything. (laughs) He was really not amused, even though, I mean, he had given this wonderful uh, civil rights speech on on February 2nd, where he said that things had to change and the military was going to change and um, with, uh, there was no longer to be uh, discrimination in the military, but not, nothing had happened, and he hadn't made any effort to do anything because he, uh, right after the speech, the South was more than uh, uh, was more than mad, and they threatened him mm. uh, uh, to to not support him in, in the next election, and um, so he was under pressure. But um, Randolph and Reynolds were not ready to back down, so they went to the Senate committee um, uh, about, and uh, the Senate committee just was talking about the universal military training, which was at the same time going on, the discussion of uh, uh, universal military training, and they said flatly that African Americans were no longer willing to serve in the American military as long as segregation was the rule, and. That was an uproar. Um, the the Senate committee was also uh, startled. Um, uh, Russell even left uh, the um, the the meeting. Um, he he didn't. Uh, strangely enough, he didn't ask any questions. Uh, but he he left the meeting mad hmm. and 
the the whole nation was in a way i mean it sounds very dramatic but uh, many that at least the press reported on the two and it made front page news which was still a very um very uh, rare thing for african americans to make front page news in in white newspapers mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Uh, the newsweek a uh, newsweek uh, produced a, a huge uh, and long article on Afro Randolph and his protest. And even Southern newspapers reported on Afro Randolph and his, mm. uh, his movement, even though it was usually on par- page eight, but still it was <laughs> in the newspaper and people were really worried. Um, uh, Richard B. Russell received a lot of letters um uh, from from uh, constituents worried about these movements and so did uh, Afel Randolph he received uh, letters from white southerners um who complained about his 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 way of dealing with it and of course um also the military was not excited cuz they it was the beginning of the cold war and they couldn't lose african american soldiers they needed service uh, people to serve to serve so and how then to have a protest movement going on in the military or before people joined the military, that was not something that uh, the American military mm-hmm. liked to see happen. Mm-hmm. Well, let me ask you a question that I think is important here. And that is, is, is there still, a, there's still a draft in the United States military at this time, right? Yes. So were, were Randolph and Reynolds saying that black soldiers would refuse to be drafted? Were they talking about draft resistance or were they talking about volunteer soldiers? No, it was both. They talked about so they were, both. Um, so they, they were telling just, that, that... They didn't want people to serve. They didn't want people to join the military, especially volunteers, but they also asked people not to serve in the draft. Um, so that was something new. It was... A different, it was, they always underlined it was not draft resistance because of religious reasons. Because uh, one of the other people who supported the movement was Bayard Rustin. And Bayard mm-hmm. Rustin had an history, a history of draft resistance, but for yeah, religious right. re- uh, reasons. Right. He mm-hmm. served, I think it was three years or two years in prison for draft resistance. Um, so he always was, he was against the military. So they, the, 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 what April Randolph and Brent Reynolds tried to do was, we are not draft resistors. We are not against the military. We are just against segregation in the military. Yeah. We don't want seg- segregation to continue. We want African Americans to be able to serve at the same time in the same place, side by side with white soldiers without yeah. any difference with the same equipment um with the same mission that's what we want they didn't they were not pacifists that right. is an essential part by ba- Rustin, on the under, other hand was against the draft and he yes. was against mm-hmm. the military he was a pa- and against military um against war he was a pacifist and that's why the two clashed uh in the course of the movement i mean the three actually um grand reynolds was not a very big fan of Bayard Rustin. neither was Bayard Rustin of grand reynolds um, so, and uh, they parted ways. Uh, I want to get that. back to that question about nonviolence in a second, but, uh, I, I think it's important because you've mentioned the executive order nine, nine, eight, one before, uh, and you know, uh, uh, people have a very, uh, 
distorted idea about this, as you said, that people think that Truman desegregated the military with this executive order, and he didn't. So can you just tell us what did Executive Order 9981 actually do? It said that there was no longer to be discrimination in the military. Um, So there was nothing along the lines that said, from now on, the American military has to desegregate. Um, that was not the order. That the military started to do so was another thing. I mean, he installed a, a, a um, committee that investigated the situation in the military. That That is what happened. Uh, they led interviews and Grant Reynolds appeared in, for, in front of the board or whatever you want to call it, in front of the committee. Um, and they did a lot and they put a lot of pressure on the military. Um, the army was the last at least excited about it uh the the uh air force and the um the navy had already started to desegregate to a certain uh, certain um extent i mean during the second world war the majority of african americans served as mess servants in the in in the navy so they they were um serving food most of the time so hmm. that's what they did. Um, so the, the, the Navy started to integrate and the Air Force started to integrate. Of course, you had the Tuskegee Airmen during the Second World War, but they still fought in segregated units. Um, and when you look at the beginning of the Second World War, the Air Force fought in more integrated um, circumstances, under more integrated circumstances than any other outfit. However, the majority of African-Americans still served in the army. So the army kind of resisted all change. They didn't want change to happen. They said that uh, African-Americans were better soldiers when serving uh, under white leadership without whites present. So that was the way they dealt with African-Americans. And MacArthur was the... uh, (laughs) not really the one who pushed for uh, integration, uh, mm-hmm. even though he, uh, after uh, his return, his kind of not very honorable return to the United States, even though he was celebrated in the United States, but his fallout with uh, Truman was rather um, heard across the world, I guess. Um, he always said that he was not the one who blocked integration, but um, African-Americans were, uh, could point to the ways he tried to, to resist integration. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, the military has made that claim uh, since that time, that, uh, or that the Army especially has said, well, uh, you know, women soldiers that would mess up yeah. you know, morale and unit cohesion, uh, yeah. gay soldiers would screw up, that same thing. So how did the Army – Given their alarms that you know integrating the army will screw up with our effectiveness and so forth, how did they go about integrating the army? I mean, when they finally decided to do it, uh, they uh, decided to do it is a nice way of putting it. I think they were kind of forced into doing it because the Korean War <laughs> did not go well, and uh-huh. it didn't go well for uh, either of. Uh, I mean. African Americans struggled and white soldiers struggled. They had difficulties filling the the the, the casualties. I mean, they just struggled so hard. Uh, the beginning of the Korean War was really a time that 
showed the inefficiency of the whole system more than anything uh, else. I mean, it didn't mm -hmm. work. Um, there were no replacements for a lot of white soldiers that, that, that died and a lot of, or, I mean, not only died, but a lot of white casualties and a lot of African-American ca casualties. It just did not work. So they were kind of forced into integrated, integrating because it didn't work. Uh, they couldn't fill the 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 the, uh, the um, lacks and the the, the the casualty lists with new soldiers, so mm -hmm. they had to do it ultimately. And so, w when they when they were forced to do it, was it more or less a smooth transition, or were there considerable bumps along the way? It was again the same like the the reports coming back it was oftentimes the way they tried to present it was uh african americans uh made better soldiers among white soldiers now that that was their story now that african americans made better soldiers when they were serving with whites because they needed mm -hmm. the white leadership in a way at least that was the story that came across and african americans <laughs> were livid um, uh, hearing again and again the same story. There was a huge story uh, in the Saturday Evening Post um, saying exactly that, that African-Americans fell asleep on the front. Again, oh. the same stereotypes. <laughs> they were cowards and afraid of the dark. That was always a stereotype that came up. So African-Americans struggled. They, they were livid when they, heard, they, they read the article. Of course, a lot of people were happy to see integration happening again. But it was, again, the, the, the same thing. They wanted the story to be positive. They wanted African-Americans in the best light possible, possible, and it did not happen. African-Americans were, again, the cowards, the lazy ones the, the, who served uh, better among whites, and not because they just felt better uh, to serve in an integrated uh, setting, but just because whites could make them better soldiers. So it was, again, a struggle with a stereotype that hmm. drove uh, African-Americans uh, to, to, to publish many articles and complaints in, in, in the le letters to the editor section. Yeah. Well, we are coming to the end of our time. So before I let you go, I, I want to return to an issue that you were discussing earlier, and that is the tension between uh, – the, the activists like Reynolds and Randolph who wanted to see African-Americans integrated fully and participating fully in the American military and the nonviolent aspect of the civil rights movement personified in this case by Bayard Rustin. Um, you know, so much of what people identify with the civil rights struggle is the nonviolence of people like King and SNCC and, and other groups like that. And, but here we have, uh, a focus on, on on soldiers and war on on violence as uh, you know organized violence as a, a, an entree into the civil rights movement. How much ambivalence and tension was there between the nonviolent activists like Rustin, uh, you know, people in core and, and so forth, and people like Randolph and Reynolds who were not pacifists. They were not pacifists, but they were still nonviolent. I think that is a very essential thing. They were not pacifists. They were not against war. And A. Philip Randolph believed in the necess necessity to fight communism with war if necessary. Um, but 
they were nonviolent. They would never fight in the streets. They would never start a fight in the street. So they, mm -hmm. their mm -hmm. protest was civil, nonviolent civil disobedience. They didn't want to fight, but they wanted the, the right to fight in a war. That was the difference. So Bayard okay. Rustin would always say, pacifism is our way. As human beings, whether black or white, we should be pacifists. And uh, A. Philip Randolph and Reynolds said, um, we abhor war, but when necessary, of course, we would fight, but only in an integrated setting. But their mm -hmm. protest movement was nonviolent nonetheless. Okay, understood. Yeah. So violence was not an option in the civil rights fight, but they wanted to be able to fight for the, for the nation, but only in an integrated uh, setting. Okay. Well, uh, Christine Knauer, we've taken up an hour of your life, and I think it's time to let you go. But before we do, uh, what is next on the uh, on the table for you? What are you going to do next? Um, I'm currently writing uh, a book, uh, or trying to write. Uh, it's right now. It's not a book. It's a manuscript. It's not even a manuscript. It's just like trying to figure out how to do it. It's it's on the last uh, quote unquote lynchings in the United States after forty five and the way the southern, um, uh, um, the southern part of the nation reacted uh, and tried to uh, form and shape the discourse on lynching. That's oh, what wow. I'm currently doing within the our my. Um, we are called the Collaborative Research Center 923 Threatened Order Societies Under Stress. So that's what we called. And <laughs> within that center, I'm mouthful. trying to write that. Uh, so, And the other thing that I'm doing right now is I'm uh, working on anti-feminism and on uh, the memory of the Korean War in the United States. Hmm. So a lot of my well, Very plate. good. That's a lot. You're right. Well, uh, Christine, thanks so much for talking with us today. Thank you very much for having the chance to talk to you. So uh, once again, my name is Dan Kilbride. I am the host of New Books in American Studies, and we've been speaking with Christine Knauer about her new book, Let Us Fight as Free Men, Black Soldiers and Civil Rights, published uh, just published in 2014 by the University of Pennsylvania Press. Uh, so this, again, New Books in American Studies, every once in a while, we pick a book on American history, literature, science, and we talk to the author about it. And we'll see you in a little bit. So long.